Hey comrades, we're now continuing on to part two of chapter two of The Wretched of the Earth by Franz Fanon. As for the people, they join in the new rhythm of their nation, in their mud huts and in their dreams. Under their breath and from their heart's core, they sing endless songs of praise to the glorious fighters. The tide of rebellion has already flooded the whole nation. Now it is the party's turn to be isolated. The leaders of the rising, however, realize that some day or another the rebellion must come to include the towns. This awareness is not fortuous. It is the crowning point of the dialectic which reigns over the development of an armed struggle for the national liberation. Although the country districts represent inexhaustible reserves of popular energy and groups of armed men ensure that insecurity is rife, there, colonialism does not doubt the strength of its system. It does not feel that it is endangered fundamentally. The rebel leaders, therefore, decide to bring the war into the enemy's camp, that is to say, into his grandiose, peaceful cities. The organizing of the rising in the centers of population sets the leaders some difficult problems. We have seen that the greater part of the leaders, born and brought up in the towns, have fled from their normal backgrounds because they wanted by the colonist police and were in general unappreciated by the cautious reasonable administrators of the political parties their retreat into the country was both a flight from persecution and a sign of their distrust for the old political structure the natural receiving stations in the town for these leaders are well known nationalists who are in the thick of the political parties but we have seen that in their recent history was precisely an offshoot of these timid, nervous officials who spend their time in ceaseless lamentation over the mid-seeds of colonialism. Moreover, the first overtures which the men of these maquis make towards their former friends, precisely those who consider to be the most toward the left, will confirm their fears and will take away even the wish to see their old companions again. In fact, the rebellion which began in the country districts will filter into the towns through that fraction of the peasant population which is blocked on the outer fringe of the urban centers, that fraction which has not yet succeeded in finding a bone to gnaw in the colonial system. The men whom the growing population of the country districts and colonial expropriation have brought into the desert their family holdings circle tirelessly around the different towns, hoping that one day or another they will be allowed inside. It is within this mass of humanity, this people of the shanty towns at the core of the lumpen proletariat, that the rebellion will find its urban spearhead. For the lumpen proletariat, that horde of starving men uprooted from their tribe and from their clan, constitutes one of the most spontaneous and the most radically revolutionary forces of the colonized people. In Kenya, in the years preceding the Mau Mau revolt, it was noticeable how the British colonial authorities multiplied intimidatory measures against the lumpen proletariat. The police forces and the missionaries coordinated their efforts in the years 1950-51 to 51 in order to make a suitable response to the enormous influx of the young Kenyans coming from the country districts and the forests, who, when they did not manage to find a market for their labor, took to stealing, debauchery, and alcoholism, Juvenile delinquency in the colonized countries is the direct result of the existence of a lumpen proletariat. In a parallel fashion, in the Congo, draconian measures were taken from 1957 onward to send back to the countryside the quote-unquote young hooligans who were disturbing the social order. Resettlement camps were opened and put under charge of the evangelical missions, protected, of course, by the Belgian army. 
The constitution of a lumpen proletariat is a phenomenon which obeys its own logic, and neither the brimming activity of the missionaries nor the decrees of the central government can check its growth. This lumpen proletariat is like a horde of rats. You may kick them and throw stones at them, but despite your efforts, they'll go on gnawing at the roots of the tree. The Shanti town sanctions the natives' biological decision to invade, at whatever cost and, if necessary, by the most cryptic methods, the enemy fortress. The lumpen proletariat, once it is constituted, brings all its forces to endanger the security of the town, and is the sign of the irrevocable decay, the gangrene ever-present at the heart of the colonial domination. So the pimps, the hooligans, the unemployed, and the petty criminals urged on from behind, throw themselves into the struggle for liberation like stout working men. These classless idlers will, by militant and decisive action, discover the path that leads to na nationhood. They won't become reformed characters to please colonial society, fitting in with the morality of its rulers. Quite on the contrary, they take for granted the impossibility of their entering the city save by hand grenades and revolvers. These workless, less than men are rehabilitated in their own eyes and in the eyes of history. The prostitutes, too, and the maids who are paid two pounds a month, all the hopeless dregs of humanity, all who turn in circles between suicide and madness, will recover their balance once more and go forward and march proudly in the great procession of the wakened nation. The nationalist parties do not understand this new phenomenon which precipitates their disintegration. The outbreak of rebellion in the towns changes the nature of the struggle. Whereas before the colonialist troops were entirely concerned with the country districts, now we see them falling back in haste on the towns in order to ensure the safety of the town population and their property. The forces of repression spread out. Danger is present everywhere. Now it's the very soil of the nation, the whole of the colony, which goes into a trance. The armed groups of peasants look on while the mailed fist looses its grip. The rising in the towns is like an unhoped-for gas balloon. The leaders of the rising, who see an ardent and enthusiastic people striking decisive blows at the colonialist machine, are strengthened in their mistrust of traditional policy. Every success confirms their hostility towards what in future they will describe as mouthwash, word-spinning, blather, and fruitless agitation. They feel a positive hatred for the quote-unquote politics of demagogy, and that is why, in the beginning, we observe a veritable triumph for the cult of spontaneity. The many peasant risings, which have their roots in the country districts, bear witness wherever they occur to the ubiquitous and usually solidly masked presence of the new nation. Every native who takes up arms is a part of the nation which from henceforth will spring to life. Such peasant revolts endanger the colonial regime. They mobilize its troops, making them spread out and threaten at every turn to crush them. They hold one doctrine only, to act in such a way that the nation may exist. There is no program, there are no speeches or resolutions, and no political trends. The problem is clear. The foreigners must go, so let us form a common front against them oppressor and let us strengthen our hands by armed combat so long as the uncertainty of colonialism continues the national cause goes on progressing and becomes the cause of each and all the plans for liberation are sketched out already they include the whole country during this period spontaneity is king and initiative is localized on every hill a government in miniature 
is formed and takes over power. Everywhere in the valleys and in the forests, in the jungle and in the villages, we find a national authority. Each man or woman brings the nation to life by his or her action and is pledged to ensure its triumph in their locality. We are dealing with a strategy of immediacy which is both radical and totalitarian. The aim of and program of each locally constituted group is local liberation. If the nation is everywhere, then she is here. One step further and only here is she to be found. Tactics are mistaken for strategy. The art of politics is simply transformed into the art of war. The political militant is the rebel. To fight the war and to take part in politics, the two things become one and the same. This people that has lost its birthright, that is used to living in the narrow circle of feuds and rivalries, will now proceed in an atmosphere of solemnity to cleanse and purify the face of the nation as it appears in the various localities. In a veritable collective ecstasy, families which have always been traditional enemies decide to rub out old scores and to forgive and forget. There are numerous reconciliations. Long buried but unforgettable hatreds are brought to light once more so that they may be more surely be rooted out. The taking on of nationhood involves a growth of awareness. The national unity is first the unity of a group, the disappearance of old quarrels, and the final liquidation of unspoken grievances. At the same time, forgiveness and purification include those natives who by their activities and by their complicity with the occupier have dishonored their country. On the other hand, traitors and those who have sold out the enemy will be judged and punished. In undertaking this onward march, the people legislates find itself and will itself to sovereignty. In every corner that is thus awakened from colonial slumber, life is lived at an impossibly high temperature. There is a permanent outpouring in all the villages of spectacular generosity, of disarming kindness and willingness which can not ever be doubted, to die for the quote-unquote cause. All this is evocative of a confraternity, a church, and of a mystical body of belief at one and the same. No native can remain unmoved by this new rhythm which leads the nation on. Messengers are dispatched to neighboring tribes. They constitute the first system of intercommunication in the rebellion and bring movement to the cadence to districts which are still motionless. Even tribes whose stubborn rivalry is well known now disarm with joyful tears and pledge to help and succor each other. Marching shoulder to shoulder in the armed struggle, these men joined with those who yesterday were their enemies. The circle of the nation widens and fresh ambushes to entrap the enemy hail of the new tribes upon the scene. Each village finds that it itself both an absolute agent of revolution and also a link in the chain of action. Solidarity between tribes and villages, national solidarity is in the first place expressed by the increasing blows struck at the enemy. Every new group which is formed, each fresh salvo that bursts out, is an indication that each is on the enemy's track and that each is prepared to meet him. This solidarity will be much more clearly shown during the second period, which is characterized by the putting into operation of the enemy's offensive. The colonial forces, once the explosion takes place, regroup and reorganize, inaugurating methods of warfare which correspond to the nature of the rising. This offensive will call into question the ideal, utopian atmosphere of the first period. The enemy attacks, 
and concentrates large forces on certain definite points. The local group is quickly overrun, all the more so because it tends to seek the forefront of battle. The optimism which reigned in the first period makes the local group fearless, or rather careless. It is persuaded that its own mountain peak is the nation, and because of this it refuses to abandon it or beat to a retreat. But the losses are serious, and doubts spring up and begin to weigh heavily upon the rebels. The group faces a local attack as if it were a decisive test. It behaves as if the fate of the whole country was literally at stake, here and now. But we should make it quite clear that this spontaneous impetuosity, which is determined to settle the fate of the colonial system, immediately is condemned insofar as it is a doctrine of instantaneity, to self-repudiation. For the most everyday practical realism takes the place of yesterday's effusion and substitutes itself for the illusion of eternity. The hard lesson of facts, the bodies mowed down by machine guns, these calls forth a complete reinterpretation of events. The simple instinct to survive engenders a less rigid, more mobile attitude. This modification and fighting technique characterized the first months of the War of Liberation of the People of Angola. We may remember that on March 15, 1961, a group of two or three thousand Angolan peasants threw themselves against the Portuguese positions. Men, women, and children, armed and unarmed, afire with courage and enthusiasm, then flung themselves in successive waves of compact masses upon the districts where the settler and the soldier and the Portuguese flag held sway. Villages and airports were encircled and subjugated to frequent attacks, but it must be added that thousands of Angolans were mowed down by colonialist machine guns. It did not take long for the leaders of the Angolan Rising to realize that they must find some other method if they really wanted to free their country. So during the last few months, the Angolan leader, Holden Roberto, has reorganized the National Angolan Army using the experience gained in various other wars of liberation and employing guerrilla techniques. The fact is that guerrilla warfare... The struggle no longer concerns the place where you are, but the place where you are going. Each fighter carries his warring country between his bare toes. The National Army of Liberation is not an army which engages once and for all with the enemy. It is rather an army which goes from village to village, falling back on the forest and dancing for joy when in the valley below there comes into view the white column of dust that the enemy columns kick up. The tribes go into action, and the various groups move about, changing their ground. The people of the north move towards the west. The people of the plains go up into the mountains. There is absolutely no strategically privileged position. The enemy thinks he is pursuing us, but we always manage to harry his rear guard, striking back at him at the very moment when he thinks he has annihilated us. From now on, it is we who pursue him. In spite of all his technical advantages and his superior artillery power, the enemy gives the impression that he is floundering and getting bogged down, and for us, we sing. We go on singing. Meantime, however, the leaders of the Rising realize that the various groups must be enlightened, they must be educated and indoctrinated, and that an army and a central authority must be created. 
The scattering of the nation, which is the manifestation of the nation in arms, needs to be corrected and become a thing of the past. Those leaders who have fled from the useless political activity of the towns rediscover politics no longer as a way of lulling people to sleep nor as a means of mystification, but as the only method of intensifying the struggle and of preparing the people to undertake the governing of their country clearly and lucidly. The leaders of the rebellion come to see that even a very large-scale peasant risings need to be controlled and directed into certain channels. These leaders are led to renounce the movement insofar as it can be termed a peasant revolt and to transform it into a revolutionary war. They discover that the success of the struggle presupposes clear objectives, a definite methodology, and above all, the need for the mass of people to realize that their unorganized efforts can only be a temporary dynamic. You can hold out for three days, maybe even three months, on the strength of a mixture of sheer resentment contained on the ma mass of people, but you won't win a national war. You'll never overthrow the terrible enemy machine, and you won't change human beings if you forget to raise the standard of consciousness of the rank and file. Neither stubborn courage nor fine slogans are enough. Moreover, as it develops, the war of liberation can be counted upon to strike a decisive blow at the faith of leaders. The enemy, in fact, changes his tactics. At opportune moments, he combines his policy of brute repression with spectacular gestures of friendship, maneuvers calculated to sow division and quote-unquote psychological action. Here and there, he tries with success to revive tribal feuds using agent provocateurs and practicing what might be called counter-subversion. Colonialism will use two types of natives to gain its ends, and the first of these are the traditional collaborators, chiefs, cades, and witch doctors. The mass of the peasantry is steeped, as we have seen in a changeless, ever-recurring life without incident, and they continue to revere their religious leaders who are descended from ancient families. The tribe follows, as one man, the way marked out for it by its traditional chief. Colonialism secures for itself the services of these confidential agents by pensioning them off at ransom price. Colonialism will also find in the lumpen proletariat a considerable space for maneuvering. For this reason, any movement for freedom ought to give its fullest attention to this lumpen proletariat. The peasant masses will always answer the call to the rebellion, but if the rebellion's leaders think it will be able to develop without taking the masses into consideration, the lumpen proletariat will throw itself into battle and will take part in the conflict, but this time on the side of the oppressor. And the oppressor, who never loses a chance of setting the n-words against each other, will be extremely skillful in using that ignorance and incomprehension which are the weakness of the lumpen proletariat. If this available reserve of human efforts is not immediately organized by the forces of the rebellion, it will find itself fighting as hired soldiers side by side with the colonial troops. In Algeria, it is the lumpen proletariat which furnished the Harkis and the Mesolis. In Angola, it supplied road openers who nowadays precede Portuguese armed columns. In the Congo, we find once more the lumpen proletariat in regional manifestations in Kasai and Katanga, while Leopoldville, the Congo's enemies, made use of it to organize quote-unquote spontaneous mass meetings against Lumbumba. 
The enemy is aware of ideological weakness, for he analyzes the forces of rebellion and studies more and more carefully the aggregate enemy which makes up a colonial people. He is also aware of the spiritual instability of certain layers of the population. The enemy discovers the existence side by side with the disciplined and well-organized advance guard of rebellion of a mass man whose participation is constantly at the mercy of their being for too long accustomed to psychological wretchedness, humiliation, and irresponsibility. The enemy is ready to pay a high price for the services of this mass. He will create spontaneity with bayonets and exemplary floggings. Dolaires and Belgian Franks pour into the Congo, while in Madagascar levies against Hova increase, and in Algeria native recruits, who are in fact hostages, are enlisted in these French forces. The leaders of the rebellion literally see the nation capsizing. The whole tribes join up as Harkis and using the modern weapons that they have been given, go onto the warpath and invade the territory of the neighboring tribe, which for this occasion has been labeled a nationalist. That unanimity in battle, so fruitful and grandiose in the first days of rebellion, undergoes a change. National unity crumbles away. The rising is at its decisive turn of the way. Now the political education of the masses is seen to be a historic necessity. That spectacular volunteer movement, which meant to lead the colonized people to supreme sovereignty at one fail swoop, that certainty you had that all portions of the nation would be carried along with you at the same speed and led onward by the same light, that strength which gave you hope, all now are seen in the light of experience to be symptoms of a great weakness. While the native thought that he could pass without transition from the status of colonized person to that of self-governing citizen of an independent nation, while he grasped at the mirage of his own muscles' immediacy, he made no real progress along the road to his knowledge. His consciousness remained rudimentary. We have seen that the native enters passionately into the fight, above all, if that fight is an armed one. The peasants threw themselves into rebellion with all the more enthusiasm in that they had never stopped clutching at a way of life which was in practice anti-colonial. From all eternity, by means of manifold tricks and through a system of checks and balances reminiscent of a conjurer's most successful sleight of hand, the country's people had more or less kept their individuality free from colonial impositions. They had even believed that colonialism was not the victor. The peasant's pride, his hesitation to go down into the towns and to mingle with the world that the foreigner had built, his perpetual shrinking back at the approach of the agents of colonial administration, all these reactions signified that to the dual world of the settler he opposed his own duality, racial feeling, as opposed to racial prejudice, and that determination to fight for one's life which characteristics the native reply to oppression are obviously good enough reasoning for joining in the fight. But you do not carry on war, nor suffer brutal and widespread repression, nor look on while other members of your family are wiped out in order to make racialism or hatred triumph. Racialism and hatred and resentment, quote-unquote, a legitimate desire for revenge, cannot sustain a war of liberation. Those lightning flashes of consciousness which fling the body into stormy paths or which throw it into an almost pathological trance where the face of the other beckons me into giddiness, where my blood calls for the blood of the other, where by sheer inertia my death calls for the death of the other, 
That intense emotion of the first few hours falls to pieces if it is left to feed on its own substance. It is true that the never-ending exactions of the colonial forces reintroduce emotional elements into the struggle and give that militant fresh motives for hating and new reasons to go off hunting for a settler to shoot. But the leaders realize, day in and day out, that hatred alone cannot draw up a program. You will only risk the defeat of your own ends if you depend on the enemy, who of course will always manage to commit as many crimes as possible, to widen the gap and to throw the whole people on the side of the rebellion. At all events, as we have noticed, the enemy tries to win the support of certain sectors of the population, certain districts, and certain chiefs. As the struggle carried on, instructions are issued to the settlers and to the police forces. Their behavior takes on a different complexion. It becomes more quote-unquote human. They even go as far as to call a native Mr. When they have dealings with him, attentions and acts of courtesy come to be the rule. The native is in fact made to feel that things are changing. The native who did not take up arms simply because he was dying of hunger and because he saw his own social forms disintegrating before his eyes, but also because... The settler considered him to be an animal and treated him as such, reacts very favorably to such measures. Hatred is disarmed by these psychological windfalls. Technologists and sociologists shed their light on colonialist maneuvers and studies on the various quote-unquote complexes pour forth. The frustration complex, the belligerency complex, and the colonializability complex. The native is promoted. They try to disarm him with their psychology, and of course they throw a few shillings too. And these miserable methods, this eyewash administered drop by drop, even meet with some success. The native is so starved for anything, anything at all that will turn him into a human being, any bone of humanity flung to him, that his hunger is incoercible, and these poor scraps of charity may here and there overwhelm him. His consciousness is so precarious and dim that it is affected by the slightest spark of kindness. Now it is that the first great undifferentiated thirst for light is continually threatened by mystification. The violent total demands which lit up the sky now become modest and withdraw the into themselves. The springing wolf which wanted to devour everything at sight and the rising gust of wind which was to have brought about real revolution run the risk of becoming quite unrecognizable if the struggle continues, and continue it does. The native may at any moment let himself be disarmed by some concession or another. Dis the discovery of this in instability inherent in the native is a frightening experience for the leaders of the rebellion. At first they are completely bewildered. Then they are made to realize by this new drift of things that explanation is very necessary and that they must stop the native con consciousness from getting bogged down. For the war goes on, and the enemy organizes, reinforces his position, and comes to guess the native strategy. The struggle for national liberation does not consist in spanning the gap at one stride. The drama has played out in all difficulty every day, and the sufferings and gender far outmeasure any endured during the colonial period. Down in the towns, the settlers seem to have changed. Our people are happier. They are respected. Day after day goes by. The native who is taking part in the struggle and the people who ought to go on giving him their help must not waver. They must not imagine that the end is already won. 
When the real objectives of the fight are shown to them, they must not think that they are impossible to attain. Once again, things must be explained to them. The people must see where they are going and how they are going to get there. The war is not a single battle, but rather a series of local engagements, and to tell the truth, none of these are decisive. So we must be sparing of our strength and not throw everything into the scales once and for all. Colonialism has greater and wealthier resources than the native. The war goes on. The enemy holds his own. The final settling of accounts will not be today, nor yet tomorrow, for the truth is that the settlement was begun on the very first day of the war, and it will be ended not because there are no more enemies left to kill, but quite simply because the enemy, for various reasons, will come to realize that his interest lies in ending the struggle and in recognizing the sovereignty of the colonized people. The objective of the struggle ought not to be chosen without discrimination, as they were in the first days of the struggle. If care is not taken, the people may begin to question the prolongation of the war at any moment that the enemy grants some concession. They are so used to the settler's scorn and to his declared intention to maintain his oppression at whatever cost that the slightest suggestion of any generous gesture or of any goodwill is hailed with astonishment and delight, and the native bursts into a hymn of praise. It must be clearly explained to the rebel that he must on no account be blindfolded by the enemy's concessions. These concessions are no more than sops. They have no bearing on the essential question, and from the native's point of view, we may lay down that concession has nothing to do with the essentials if it does not affect the real nature of the colonial regime. For, as a matter of fact, the more brutal manifestations of the presence of the occupying power may perfectly well disappear. Indeed, such a spectacular disappearance turns out to be both a saving of expense to colonial power and a positive way of preventing its forces being spread out over a wide area. But such a disappearance will be paid for at a high price, the price of a much stricter control of the country's future destiny. Historic examples can be quoted to help the people to see that the masquerade of giving concessions and even the mere acceptance of the principle of concessions at any price have been bartered by not a few countries for the servitude that is less blatant but much more complete. The people and all their leaders ought to know that historical law which lays down that certain concessions are the cloak for a tighter reign. But when there has been no work of clarification, it is astonishing with what complacency the leaders of certain political parties enter into undefined compromises with the former colonists. The native must realize that colonialism never gives anything away for nothing. Whatever the native may gain through political or armed struggle is not the result of kindness or goodwill of the settler. It simply shows that he cannot put off granting concessions any longer. Moreover, the native ought to realize that it is not colonialism that grants such concessions, but he himself that extorts them. When the British government decides to bestow a few more seats to the National Assembly of Kenya upon the African population, it needs plenty of effrontery or else a complete ignorance of facts to maintain that the British government has made a concession. It, is it not obvious that it is the Kenyan people who have made the concession? The colonized people, the peoples who have been robbed, must lose the habits of mind which have characterized them up to now. If need be, the native can accept a compromise with colonialism, 
but never a surrender of principle. All this taking stock of the situation, this enlightening of consciousness, and this advance in the knowledge of history of societies are only possible within the framework of an organization and inside the structure of a people. Such organization is set afoot by the use of revolutionary elements coming from the towns at the beginning of the rising, together with those rebels who go down into the country as the fight goes on. It is this core which constitutes the embryonic political organization of the rebellion. But on the other hand, the peasants who are all the time adding to their knowledge in light of the experience will come to show themselves capable of directing the people's struggle. Between the nation on wartime footing and its leaders there established a mutual current of enlightenment and enrichment. Traditional institutions are reinforced, deepened, and sometimes literally transformed. The tribunals which settle disputes, the digimas, and the village assemblies turn into revolutional tribunals and political and military committees. In each fighting group and every village, hosts of political commissioners spring up, and the people who are beginning to splinter upon the reefs of misunderstanding will be shown their bearings by these political pilots. Thus, the latter will not be afraid to tackle problems which, if left unclarified, would contribute to the bewilderment of the people. The rebel in arms is in fact vexed to see what many natives go on living it, their lives in the towns as if they were strangers to everything taking place in the mountains, and as if they failed to realize that the essential movement for freedom has begun. The towns keep silent, and their continuing their daily humdrum life gives the peasant the bitter impression that the whole sector of the nation is content to sit on the sideline. Such proofs of indifference disgust the peasants and strengthen their tendency to co condemn the townsfolk as a whole. The political educator ought to lead them to modify this attitude by getting them to understand that certain fractions of the population have particular interests and that these do not always coincide with the national interests. The people will thus come to understand that national independence sheds light upon many facts which are sometimes divergent and antagonistic. Such a taking stock of the situation at this precise moment of the struggle is decisive, for it allows the people to pass from total indiscriminating nationalism to social and economic awareness. The people who at the beginning of the struggle had adopted the primitive Manichaeism of the settler blacks and whites, Arabs and Christians, realize as they go along that it sometimes happens that when you get blacks who are whiter than the whites and that fact of having a national flag and the hope of independent nation does not always tempt certain strata of the population to give up their interests or privileges. The people come to realize that natives like themselves do not lose sight of the main chance, but quite on the contrary, seem to make use of the war in order to strengthen their material situation and their growing power. Certain natives continue to profiteer and exploit the war, making their gains at the expense of the people who are usual prepared to sacrifice everything and water their native soil with their blood. The militant who faces the colonialist war machine with the bare minimum of arms realizes that while he is breaking down colonial oppression, he is building up automatically yet another system of exploitation. This discovery is unpleasant, bitter, and sickening, and yet everything seemed to be so simple before. The bad people were on one side, and the good on the other. The clear, unreal, idyllic light of the beginning is 
followed by a semi-darkness that bewilders the senses. The people find out that the iniquitous fact of exploitation can wear a black face, or an Arab one, and they raise the cry of treason. But the cry is mistaken, and the mistake must be corrected. The treason is not national, it is social. The people must be taught to cry, stop, thief. In their weary road towards rational knowledge, the people must also give up their too simple conception of their overlords. The species is breaking up under their very eyes. As they look around them, they notice that certain settlers do not join in the general guilty hysteria. There are differences in the same species. Such men who were before included without distinction in indiscriminately and the monolithic maths of the foreigner's presence actually go so far as to condemn the colonial war. The scandal explodes when the prototypes of this division of the species go over to the enemy, become Negroes or Arabs, and accept suffering, torture, and death. Such examples disarm the general hatred that the native feels toward the foreign settlement. The native surrounds these few men with warm affection and tends by a kind of emotional overvaluation to place absolute confidence in them. In the mother country, once looked upon as bloodthirsty and implacable stepmother, many voices are raised, some of those of prominent citizens in condemnation of the policy of war that their government is following, advising that the national will of the colonized people should be taken into consideration. Certain soldiers desert from the colonist ranks, others explicitly refuse to fight against the people's liberty and go to prison for the sake of the right of the people to independence and self-government. The settler is not simply the man who must be killed. Many members of the mass colonialist reveal themselves to be much, much nearer to the national struggle than certain sons of the nation. The barriers of blood and race prejudice are broken down on both sides. In the same way, not every Negro or Muslim is issued automatically a hallmark of genuineness, and the gun or the knife is not inevitably reached for when a settler makes his appearance. Consciousness slowly dawns upon truths that are only partial, limited, and unstable. As we may surmise, all this is very difficult. The task of bringing the people to maturity will be made easier by the thoroughness of the organization and by the high intellectual level of its leaders. The force of intellect increases and becomes more elaborate as the struggle goes on, as the enemy increases his maneuvers and as victories are gained and defeats suffered. The leaders show their power and authority by criticizing mistakes, using every appraisal of past conduct to bring the lesson home, and thus ensure fresh conditions for progress. Each local ebb of the tide will be used to review the question from the standpoint of all villages and of all political networks. The rebellion gives proof of its rational basis and expresses its maturity each time that it uses a particular case to advance the people's awareness. In defiance of those inside the movement who tend to think that shades of meaning constitute dangers and drive wedges into the solid block of popular opinion, the leaders stand firm upon those principles that have been stifened out in the national struggle and in the worldwide struggle of mankind for his freedom. There exists a brutality of thought and a mistrust of subtlety which are typical of revolutions, but there also exists another kind of brutality which is astonishingly like the first, and which is typically anti-revolutionary, hazardous, and anarchist. This unmixed and 
total brutality, if not immediately combated, invariably leads to the defeat of the movement within a few weeks. The nationalist militant who has fled from the town in disgust at the demagogic and reformist maneuvers of the leaders, there, disappointed by political life, discovers in real action a new form of political activity which in no way resembles the old. These politics are the politics of leaders and organizers living inside history who take lead with their brains and their muscles in the fight for freedom. These politics are national, revolutionary, and social, and these new facts, which the native will now come to know, only exist in action. They are the essence of the fight which explodes the old colonial truths and reveals unexpected facades, which brings out new meanings and pinpoints the contradictions camouflaged by these facts. The people engaged in the struggle, who, because of it, command and know these facts go forward, freed from colonialism, and forewarned of all attempts at mystification, inoculated against all national anthems, violence alone, violence committed by the people, violence organized and educated by its leaders, makes it possible for the masses to understand social truths and gives the key to them. Without that struggle, without that knowledge of the practice of action, there's nothing but a fancy dress parade and the blare of the trumpets. There's nothing save a minimum of readaptation, a few reforms at the top, a flag waving, and down there at the bottom, an undivided mass, still living in the Middle Ages, endlessly marking time. So that's the end of chapter two. Next, we'll go into the chapter three called The Pitfalls of National Consciousness. <laughs>